You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Before we turn to our text in the Song of Songs, chapter 4, we first turn to a number of passages in the Old and New Testaments. We begin at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, the verses 4 through 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had sent rain on the earth, and there was no, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now we turn to Isaiah's prophecy, the second chapter. And there we read the first five verses. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now we turn to Revelation to John, chapter 22, first six verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Our text this morning is the Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinar, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. Brothers and sisters, we sometimes refer to great happenings or achievements in our lives as mountaintop experiences. I'm talking about those once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Maybe what comes to mind is something you did during your summer vacation. Perhaps it's something that you had wanted to do or planned to do for a very long time, and you finally had the opportunity. It might be an achievement that you never thought you'd be able to attain, even in your wildest dreams or that you had been working long to attain. But then again, you might say that mountaintop experiences are foreign to you. They don't seem to be your thing. You've never had one, and you don't expect to have one. Well, before you start thinking along those lines, listen to what God has to tell you through His Word this day. He plans to bring you to a a place of such beauty and majesty and glory and to give you such an exhilarating experience of His love and grace in Jesus Christ that it is far beyond anything that you could have ever thought or imagined even in your wildest dreams. The Song of Songs to which we give our attention today is a poem or a song which tells the story of a man and a woman who fall in love. You will understand that this isn't just any man or woman, though. The man in this poem is a king. Earlier in the poem, he is identified as Solomon. And the woman he is pursuing is going to become his royal bride. There's no doubt that in this section of the Song of Songs, where our text is, a wedding is happening. This man and woman are getting married. This king is getting married. And he's absolutely exhilarated about this beautiful woman who is becoming his wife. 
And he's taking her into the mountains to show her how exhilarated he is. He wants to spend some time with her. Sort of like honeymoon. In the mountains. He wants to take her to a mountaintop excursion. In Lebanon. Look at what he says. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinur, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. Now a question that we have right away is why does Solomon choose the mountains as a meeting place with his bride? Why not the ocean? Why not an island? Well, from the heights of the mountains, he wants to show his bride his kingdom. He wants to show her the realm that belongs to him, which she is about to become the queen over. For his kingdom will now also be hers. King Solomon is eager to take his bride to a place where the two of them can gaze together upon the kingdom of Israel. You sense a a breathless, impulsive eagerness in Solomon's words. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Now what was so special about Lebanon? Well, Lebanon consisted of a large mountain range, some 150 kilometers long, along the Mediterranean coast, one of the most beautiful parts of the world. Lebanon was part of the inheritance which God had promised His people. Listen to what God told His people before they entered the promised land in Deuteronomy 11. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates to the Western Sea. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what a man might say to his bride? Everything I have is now yours. And that's what God, the king, had said to his bride, Israel. This is something we have to understand about the Song of Songs, brothers and sisters. You see, the Song of Songs isn't just about Solomon's love for his bride. Typically, poems and songs, even today, have different levels of meaning. The Song of Songs isn't just Solomon's love song for his bride. The Song of Songs is also God's love song for His people. In fact, the Song of Songs is Christ's love song for His church. God in Christ is King and His chosen people, the church, are His bride. 
whom he pursues and loves with all his heart. You, brothers and sisters, are his bride whom he loves and longs for and pursues with all his heart. So listen to what God was saying to his people here in our text. All this land of Canaan that belongs to me, well, all this is now yours too. Look at it all. Wherever you walk, it's all yours. From the desert to Lebanon, from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea, like we sang in Psalm 72. What Yahweh did for His bride when He handed over to Israel the entire promised land, Solomon now does for His bride. It's all yours, He says. My kingdom is yours. And you see, that's what Jesus does for us. He promises us His kingdom. He reveals His kingdom to us. He lets us gaze upon it. And then He says to us, His bride, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that astounding? Notice how Solomon shows his bride his kingdom from every possible vantage point in the mountains of Lebanon. Lebanon consisted of a, a huge mountain range with many peaks, a few of which are mentioned in our text. First, he takes her to the crest of Amana, from which one of the most beautiful, pure, and pristine rivers flows. Then he whisks her off to the top of Sinar and then to the summit of Hermon, which was the highest mountain in the Lebanon range. Scholars have argued about how the word descend should be translated because it also means gaze upon in Hebrew. So, we could read it this way, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Take a look from the crest of Amana. Take a look from the top of Sinar, the summit of Hermon. See, Solomon is really using a play on words here. He uses this double meaning word on purpose. Solomon invites his bride to the highest summits of his kingdom so that as he descends with her, she can see with her own eyes the far reaches of his royal kingdom. We should know a little bit more about Lebanon. The politically troubled and unstable Lebanon today is far different from the Lebanon of that time as described to us in the Bible. By all the descriptions that we have in the Bible, Lebanon was a place of rare and breathtaking 
beauty. Lebanon was celebrated for its towering cedars and its gorgeous flowers. Lebanon was known for the intoxicating fragrance of its forests and the heady palate of its wines. Moses spoke of the promised land as the the good land beyond the Jordan. That fine hill country and Lebanon. Or as an older translation has it, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. It was a beautiful place. Lebanon had many streams flowing through it and rivers and its mighty cedars and rocks, as you may know, were used to furnish Solomon's temple. Solomon's palace, in fact, was named the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. place everyone wanted to see in those days. Furthermore, Solomon built store cities and towns for his many chariots and horses in this beautiful place. Every mention of Lebanon in the Song of Songs praises it as a place of beauty and peace and serenity. So put together with the other descriptions of Lebanon in the Bible, Lebanon is pictured by Solomon as a place much like Eden. The Garden of Eden. Pristine and unspoiled by sin. Even the fierce beasts bring no harm. The bride and groom are unafraid as they scuttle past lions' dens and the homes of the leopards. We have the same picture here of Edenic, paradisal peace as we have in Isaiah 11. Like the Garden of Eden. It says in Isaiah 11 about the paradise that is promised in the glorious future that God has for us. It says there, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw with the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what paradise is going to be like. That's what the Garden of Eden is going to be like on the new heavens and the new earth. Now this picture of Lebanon as a type of Eden is hardly surprising in a poem that is 
penned by Solomon. What was it like during Solomon's reign? Well, it was kind of paradise-like. Israel was united and Israel at that time under Solomon enjoyed a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. It's also significant that the paradise-like garden here in the Song of Songs is described as a mountain paradise. This mountain paradise of Lebanon, you see, has a lot in common with the paradise in which the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, met. In fact, the Garden of Eden, too, was on a mountain. It was on a mountain in the presence of God that the first man and woman got married. Now, how do we know that? Well, notice what we read in Genesis 2. There we're told in Genesis 2, we're told that there was a river watering the garden and that from the garden it separated into four headwaters which fed four rivers which stretched out in every direction. By this description, the Garden of Eden had all the features of a mountain garden from whose river mighty waterfalls tumbled into swelling streams that went out into the earth in every direction. Now that's where God brought Adam and Eve together. In that mountaintop paradise of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's marriage, you see, was literally a mountaintop marriage. A match made in heaven, we might say. God chose a mountain as the place where He met with Adam and Eve. And even after the fall into sin, God still chose certain mountains as places where He met with His people. Think of Mount Sinai, where God met with His bride after He rescued her from Egypt. Think of Mount Moriah, where God met with Abraham. Think of Mount Carmel, where God met with Elijah. Think of Mount Zion, which God chose as the place where He would continually meet with His bride, His people. Now, brothers and sisters, we too have been invited to meet God on His holy mountain. That's why we're here today, in fact. Think of the call to worship this morning in Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. 
Think especially of Hebrews 12. But you, God says to us, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's what it's like on God's holy mountain. That's what it's like when we worship brothers and sisters, whether we recognize it or not. By the Spirit, you see, and by faith, we aren't just worshiping here in this building confined by these four walls. By the Spirit, and by faith, as we worship, Something incredible, something astounding is happening. By the Spirit, as we worship, we are ascending the holy mountain of God. We are ascending into the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we are right now. God is our husband. And we, the church, are His bride. And He has summoned us to His holy mountain to be with Him, to gaze upon His kingdom, the kingdom which He is bestowing upon us. And so we can say, our relationship with God is a match made in heaven. Christ's marriage to His church is a mountaintop marriage. But remember this, brothers and sisters, this marriage between God and us cost Him dearly. First, His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, had to be lifted up on another mountain. You know what mountain that is. The mountain of Calvary. There on Mount Calvary, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Do you remember what Jesus promised as He hung on the cross? He promised paradise to the repentant criminal. And that's His promise to us too who repent and turn to Him. Paradise. Jesus ascended that mountain, the mountain of Calvary, To meet God in His wrath. So that we would be able to ascend God's holy mountain and receive His mercy. Astonishing. Oh, the depths of the riches of the love of God. 
Now, what does this mean for our marriages? Well, it first of all means that our marriages need to our marriages need to start in the right place. Husband and wife need to come t- together in the same place where God and man meet together. And that's why Christian marriages are solemnized in a solemn meeting between God and His people. It also means that only when a husband and wife are together looking at life from the high vantage point of God's heavenly kingdom will they be able to experience the fullness of marital love. It means furthermore that unless a man and a woman, husband and wife, seek to enter the paradise of marriage by way of the cross of Jesus, unless that happens, Christian husbands and wives will never enter that paradise. Jesus alone holds the key to paradise. Jesus alone can say to a couple on their wedding day and every day thereafter, You too will be with me in paradise. We're together. You may walk with God like Adam and Eve did in paradise. It's only when a man and woman in love, a husband and wife, see themselves along with the criminal on the cross, crucified with Christ, that they dare hope for paradise in their marriage. Let's think that through. How many marriages haven't seen shipwreck or been very close because either one of the spouses or both have been both unrepentant and unforgiving? The only way our marriages will thrive, brothers and sisters, is if husband and wife daily meet with God together. In humble prayer. Daily seeking and offering forgiveness and peace with one another through Jesus Christ. The same applies to the blossoming relationships between boyfriends and girlfriends, between young men and young women who are courting. I don't think that all this only applies to those who are married or planning to get married. Every Christian can have his or her eyes on the mountaintops. In Christ Jesus, all Christians are invited to the mountain of God, His sanctuary, the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 14. He tells us that we are called heavenwards in Christ Jesus. From there, from heaven, 
by faith, we are allowed to view the kingdom of God which He has bestowed on us. There's a lot more. A whole lot more. From the heavenly sanctuary, the mountain of God, we don't only get the right perspective on our marriages and on our relationships. From the vantage point of the mountain of God, we get the, pers- the right perspective on all of life. Then, as we descend from God's mountain every day again, we may do so in the blissful awareness that ours is the kingdom of heaven. As we make our way into the world every new day, we may look down on all the mountains we must climb. That's a different perspective, isn't it? We may look down on all the mountains that we must climb from the perspective of the mountain of God. And then, all those other mountains will not be insurmountable. Then there will be no mountain that is too high to climb. For Jesus Himself, at the great cost of His own blood and His very life, has taken us over the highest mountain. And so all the mountains that we must climb at work, at school, in politics and in public life, in our marriages and families and relationships, we can view from the mountain of God His holy hill. From the beautiful and expansive mountain vistas of the kingdom of heaven, God gives us the perspective and vantage point we need to see where we're going, whatever direction He is planning to take us next. Exalt the Lord our God, brothers and sisters, and worship at His holy mountain. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.